You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's good. It's good to see so many of you when it's so cold outside. Brantley just informed me that he, his car actually had gotten stuck this morning. Hopefully you didn't have any of those sorts of issues. Uh, that Maglio, uh, Maglio Ordonez home run was an amazing moment for those of us that saw it. I, at the time, was holding my maybe uh, nine-month-old in my lap when the home run was hit, and I was so excited. I lifted him like this. And uh, he totally freaked out. It was his worst sports moment, I think, ever. Uh, he was not happy about that at all. But uh, yeah, yeah, go blue and all that good stuff. Uh, although somebody this week, uh, one of my wife's colleagues was saying, um, yeah, this is probably going to only last for maybe a couple months or maybe a couple of years. And then it's going to be like, that was so old. Who cares? Like, we need the next one. We need the next one. So anyway, hopefully you guys were safe and enjoyed all of that. That was good stuff. All right, 12 days before making the biggest discovery of his life, Kevin Hillier had a very vivid dream. Now, uh, I don't know, when most people start telling me about their dreams, I just glaze, I don't want to hear about your dreams. Uh, no, no offense to you personally, but generally they make zero sense and they're really boring. Um, and he, when he had this dream that was very vivid, uh, he woke up and he did something that, that I've never done, which is he began to take a piece of paper and he wanted to write down exactly what his dream was. And so he took out a piece of paper and this is what he drew. He drew this picture and he was so convinced that this was something significant that he drew it and then he went to his neighbor and he asked his neighbor to sign it and date it and the whole bit because he knew that at some point this picture was going to be significant in his life in some way. Now, uh, you look at that, I look at that, I'm like, uh, okay, like that doesn't seem like a vivid anything. It's just a very strange shape. And it probably would have been lost to time if not for a discovery that he made shortly thereafter. He and his wife, Bep, were living in a converted van with their four children. He had recently un undergone uh, uh, back surgery. And his doctor told me he needed to get some exercise. If that sounds like something we said last week, the rest of the story is also going to be a little familiar because he decided that the best way to rehab his back was to, to walk and to get some exercise. And so he and his wife decided they were going to buy metal detectors, huh? We're on a theme here, metal detectors. And so they decided we're going to go searching for, for, for whatever we can find. And, you know, hopefully as we're doing that, our backs will start to get better and that sort of thing. They happened to be in an area that was known for having like these little bits of gold and stuff. So I figured, hey, this will be great. So about two weeks after his vivid dream, before heading to school to pick up the kids, Kevin and his wife, Bep, yes, that's her name, Bep, um, they decided, hey, let's just go to the local park and spend some time detecting. That's what they did. So they're out there, they're doing their detecting thing with their headphones on, and all of a sudden, Bep could hear her husband screaming. At least that's what she thought, and then she, she took her headphones off, and and then it was quiet. So she's like, oh, maybe I was missing it. So she put the headphones back on, and then she heard the screaming again. And now the screaming was really loud, and it was sustained, and she thought, oh my goodness, he's injured. So she rushed over to where the screaming was, and when she got over there, there her husband was on his hands and knees, kneeling kind of in some brush and that sort of thing, and he was crying, and he was praying. And she was like, what's going on? And he said, look. And in the hole in front of them, 
they could see uh, a gold of, of some size. And so together they started quickly like trying to clear it back to, to pull out what was there underneath the dirt. And what they found was a nugget. But it's, I, I, when, I, when I hear nugget, I'm like, oh, nugget, or like chicken nugget, you know, like that kind of nugget. Uh, it was a little bit bigger than that. This is what they discovered. This is over 60 pounds. This is uh, 960 ounces of gold. And this has become known as the hand of faith, perhaps because it looks vaguely like that weird little drawing thing that he had drawn, or because he was a man of faith and he was praying whatever, but whatever. They, they had had this metal detector for about two weeks, and they made this one and a half million dollar discovery in their local park. Now, Two weeks. In two weeks, I've told you two stories about incredible finds with metal detectors. How many of you went and purchased a metal detector? <laughs> Just one. Just one faithful man. <laughs> the rest of you, not so much. Why? Well, there's snow, for starters, right? Like, you know, it doesn't, I don't know how it works through all the snow. Maybe that's why. I mean, the other reason is because well, there's no guarantees that anything like that is ever going to happen for you. In fact, the only guarantee is that you're going to look like a dork walking around your local park. That's the only guarantee of metal detecting. If we thought that we were going to discover gold every time, we would probably all jump in. But we know that that isn't what happens for 99.9% of us who are walking around and trying to figure out what we're listening to as it chirps at us from whatever's beneath the ground. Now, we are in week two of our three-week sermon series called... Habits of Grace. This is a nod to our lovely habitsofgrace.org website that Ryan on staff here created, where we have a scripture reading plan that a number of us are reading together. This is also a nudge to us because some of us began this year, uh, 24, with really good goals in mind and like resolutions and like things that we were going to do so that at the end of this year, we weren't just older, we were in fact better. Some of us were like, you know, I, this is the year that I'm going to master that language, or this is the year that I'm going to eat a vegetable, or this is the year whatever it is. You know, you, you thought this is the year, and yet here we are two and a half-ish weeks into January, and some of you have already dropped those new habits you were going to have. You already gave up on the resolutions, and that could be because of the busyness of school or work or the, kind of the tragedy that our church is facing or even the, whatever it is, we, some of us, have gotten off track. And so we're spending this three weeks looking at these three separate habits that Jesus says are guaranteed to produce gold. It's like you'll find gold. If you do this, you will be rewarded. That, that's what he says. That's what he says. So last week we looked at giving. This week we're going to look at habit number two. This is in Matthew chapter 6. If you haven't opened there already, page 811 in the Pew Bible. In Matthew 6, Jesus uses this little formula as he's teaching about these three habits. He says, when you, don't you, then you. So when you do the such and such, don't you do such and such like that. Like he gives some warnings about it. Then you, he says, will be rewarded. So when you do this, don't do it like that, then you will receive a reward. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And there are these three things that Jesus goes through, these three habits, if you will. Now, last week we talked about how this whole sermon is painting a new vision for humanity. 
The perfect world where God could occupy the same space as humanity. We talked about this a little on Christmas Eve. For those of you that were there, this might be a little recap. But, but, but the perfect world where it was God's space and human space, and they sort of overlapped. Like, you know, they walked together. Like, everything was perfect. That had been lost in the garden. When the humanity rebelled against God, no longer was there this sort of overlap between heaven and earth. Everything was different. And occasionally, throughout the Old Testament, as you read it, occasionally it feels like for just a second, heaven's overlapping earth again. For just a second. There's this strange story that we talked about again on Christmas Eve, which, I don't know, this is the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about it, but I was super excited about this strange story of, of Jacob having a vision of a ladder from heaven down to earth. I've heard that in other sermons, just not a Christmas one, but, but angels were going up and down the ladder, and, and Jacob was like, oh, oh, I get it. This is the spot where heaven, like, touches earth where it overlaps. And so he set up a rock and he anointed the rock and he called it the house of the Lord. And then you you keep working through the Old Testament and then like God's presence shows up on a mountain and like chars the top of a mountain, which is amazing. And then there's like this tabernacle and there's like a pillar of fire and all this stuff. And it's like just in these select places for a select amount of time, you can see that here's earth and God's space is usually over there. But just for this moment, it seems like it's here. And then there were certain people in the Bible where it seemed also like God's spirit would like touch them for a certain amount of time and all of a sudden God's space would sort of invade human space. But it never lasted very long. The priests, the kings, the prophets, whatever, they, they die. You know what? They just, it never lasted where heaven and earth overlapped until Jesus came. And Jesus, we call Jesus the Christ. And the Christ means the anointed one. The one who came and he started to go around and as he grows up, Jesus starts going around and goes, hey, hey, uh, the kingdom is here. It's here. The kingdom. And it says that's what Jesus preached about, the kingdom. Now, I don't know if you've been around the Bible a long time and, and studying the Gospels. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, I have regularly been confused about what Jesus is saying. Like, what is this kingdom? But what he's saying is, hey, do you want to know where, where on earth it's just like it is in heaven? Right here. I am the overlap. I am the place where heaven meets earth. I'm the light of the world. I'm, I'm the bread of life. I am heaven touching earth. So turn from your old ways and then follow my kingdom way. Just just walk in my way. And so he starts to go, and he's teaching, hey, 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 this is where heaven and earth overlap, right in me. So don't just follow me. And as Jesus teaches, he then goes and he demonstrates. He starts doing heaven stuff on earth. He, like, controls nature. He casts out demons. He heals. He starts doing all this heaven stuff right there on earth. Well, one day, Jesus goes up onto a mountain to teach. Now, in the Bible, I don't know if you've uh, uh, seen this before or noticed this, but in the Bible, mountains are important. Did you know that? Like, mountains matter, okay? Now, you're like, well, what do you mean? I mean, like, a lot of holy moments happen on mountains. Like, if you want to meet God, a lot of times people are climbing to the top of the mountain to kind of look, look for God up there. In fact, a lot of the false religions set up their things in high places as well, their, their little statues. We even use that language now. I want a mountaintop experience. What does that mean? It means I go to the top of a mountain and I try to get close to God. 
or, or I want to just feel that. So in the Bible, when someone goes on a mountain and it's like this spiritual moment, you should pay close attention. Well, Jesus goes up on this mountain, this hillside, which you can visit today if you'd like. We, when we go on our uh, Israel tours, we go up in that area on one of the mountains that we think is maybe the one he was on, and we do some teaching. And he began to teach about this heaven-on-earth way, his way. Now, certain things that Jesus taught, he was like, look, this is my way. And you go, well, that looks like the old way. And he wants to make sure that you understand the old way and his way are, are two different things. So here's what he says when he gets to habit number two. This is verse five. And when you pray, when you, don't you, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, there's our promise. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He says, when you pray... Don't pray like a showy hypocrite or a wordy Gentile. Then you will be rewarded. Now, I've preached on this prayer a few times. Lord willing, I'll get to do that a few more. Today, here's how we're going to look at it. The practice of prayer, the posture of prayer, and then the promise of prayer. Let's, let's first talk about the practice of prayer. How do you pray? Think about it. What is your practice what is your daily practice of prayer? Or what, maybe you don't pray daily, but, but how do you pray? Pretty much everybody that you know and I know prays at some point in their life. Even if they don't believe in God, there comes a moment in the third quarter of a national championship game where they're praying. Right? Every person we know and in their very like, most tense moments are like, if there is a God, please. Right? The moment when it doinks off of that, that pole and that field goal, and you're just like, oh, please, God. Everybody has a practice of prayer, and, and many of our practices look a certain way. And it's not until we get into a different culture or with somebody very different than us that prays differently that we even realize that we have a way of doing things. We just assume we do it the way. And then we're like, oh, they, they have a different practice. So uh, when you're in Israel, you see some different prayer practices. Uh, one of the places that I'd never seen it before until the last time I went was uh, on the plane. I was on a plane. It was the middle something in the morning. I don't know what time it was, but I was sleeping. And then all of a sudden, everywhere, all over the plane, uh, Orthodox Jewish men began to stand up and put their prayer shawls on and take out uh, uh, their Bible or their prayer book and, and begin to like pray in the plane, just everywhere. I mean, and I was sort of in a haze. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what? What is happening? And, all, and they were all, for a certain amount of time, they were praying. And then when they were done, they all sat down. And I went, okay, that's, that's different. 
right? That, that's not wrong. That's just, that's just like a different practice of prayer. I have never in my life done that. Not once have I stood there with this and, and rocked and wore a prayer shawl. That I just have a very different way of doing things. And when Jesus is teaching on prayer, we have to realize they had a different way of praying probably than what we're used to. It probably wasn't unusual in that culture for them to have very rote prayers. There's a series of prayers called the Amida, which is about standing, which are these blessings and these benedictions that are being said. And we're not exactly sure when that practice started, but what we know is that in Jewish culture, even at the time of Jesus, they had some sort of prescription for how they prayed. They, they had been taught this in synagogue. There was a way to do it, just like us, right? We have certain prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep, whatever. Maybe, maybe you were taught to pray like that. Father, bless this Big Mac, make it healthy to our bodies, right? Whatever, whatever you were taught. That seems like a weird prayer, by the way. I don't know. I don't know. God's like, no, I will not. But they had a specific practice. And the disciples, at another time, they had seen Jesus pray, and then they'd been taught this way, and then they watched Jesus pray, and they're like, our prayers don't look or sound like yours, Jesus. They actually go to him and they're like, can you, can you? Like some of us are, Peter specifically, is struggling with prayer, and can you teach us how to pray like you? And then he taught this same prayer that we read right here. He goes, yeah, this is, this is how, this is what your practice of prayer is supposed to look like. Well, what does he tell us about the practice of prayer? Well, he gives us some, well, the practice should not be like this. Here, let's look again at what he said. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you, or who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Jesus assumed that you are already praying and you already have a practice that you learned at the synagogue. I'm going to give you some specific, but I'm just, by the way, can I assume that we're praying? Like if Jesus were to walk in here, he, would he, when he said, when you pray, wait a second. Are you praying? I mean, really. Could, could he assume the same thing about us that he was assuming about them? When do you pray? Besides mealtime. Besides third quarter, fourth quarter, overtime. When do you pray? What, what I have found is that if I don't start straight away in the morning being aware and dialed into the presence of God, I am done for the day. I'm ruined. I will not at any point have a good sort of prayer connection with God if I don't start it immediately. Now that isn't, you're like, I'm not a morning person. Look, I, okay, whatever. I don't care. I just know, fine, when, at 11 when you wake up, okay? <laughs> I just think the first thing ought to be the check-in. Okay, here I am, deep breaths, there you are. C.S. Lewis said this, and he said this before smartphones, okay? The moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. 
How true is that? I wake up and it's immediate that all of the issues and the hopes and the struggles and the fears, it is like a wild animal and it is so easy to just get on that treadmill of busyness and to miss it. When you pray, well, let's start directly first thing in the morning at least checking in with God. When you pray, start then. But don't do it like this. Well, like what? Beware of praying like a showy hypocrite. Apparently, there were folks in that culture that would go to the street corners and synagogues and they made a grand show of their prayer because they wanted everybody to know exactly how holy that they were, right? We, we would call this virtue signaling, right? They, they wanted their community, oh, now that is a prayerful person. Look at how loudly they lift their voices. L- l- look at how much time they're spending praying. Aren't they wonderful? And the issue here was not that somebody is praying out loud, praying publicly. We do it every Sunday, right? You do it at family meals, maybe. That's not the problem, It's not the problem to be an outward example of praying. The problem is when your prayers are specifically intended to get a reaction from the people that are around you. When you want attention from them, you want applause, that sort of thing. Similar to what we talked about last week. Now, this particular way of praying is not something that we would do to virtue signal, right? We wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go to the diag and, and like kneel in the middle and make the crowd just weaver. Maybe somebody does. But that's not how you tell everybody, look how holy I am. Basically, you're saying, look how crazy I am. That's what that would say to our culture, right? If you were just out there being real demonstrative in your prayer in the middle of a sea of people around here, they would look at you and go, that person's strange. Not that person's really holy. That is not the best place to virtue signal. Do you know where it is the best place? Social media is really good. Do you know what it looks like? Now, I'm going to say this, and you're going to be like, oh, that's you. I don't mean that. I'm going to say it anyway. But I think what this looks like now is going to your secret prayer place and taking a picture with your Bible open, highlighted in the right spots, and a little cup of tea, and then, letting, and then putting filters on it, and then posting it, and then interacting with the comments, and then spending more time on the post than the prayer that was supposedly happening in that spot. I mean, for example. Now, is there anything wrong with letting people know publicly via social media, etc., that you're praying? No! I'll pray hand emoji you all day. (laughs) Someone's like, that's a high five. I better not be. I better not be. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with putting a prayer online for other people to read and be encouraged by. That's all fine. The point is, what is my goal? Am I truly trying to talk to God and encourage others, or am I truly trying to get like likes or shares? Like, what is my goal in this? Who is my real audience? And so, we should not pray like showy hypocrites. We should pray for an audience of one, for God primarily, that, that, that he's the one that we're concerned hears our prayers. We should also not pray like wordy Gentiles, wordy Gentiles. 
pagan gods demanded a lot of their worshipers. You had to sacrifice and give and appease and worship and pray and do all these things. And there were no guarantees that they would respond in any way to what you wanted. And so you better use a lot of words. You, must, you had to get the incantation just right for the magic to happen, so to speak. And that way you could get what you desired. And Jesus said, no, no. Prayer is not about showing off or trying to manipulate or cajole or trick or convince God to do what you want. Maybe the little Gentile gods act that way. That's not our God. He knows what you need before you say it. So just be relatively simple and direct and speak to him. So that is what Jesus taught us on the posture of prayer. Some do nots. Or I'm sorry, on the practice. Part two, the posture of prayer, the posture of prayer. Well, let's look at the invitation that comes right at the beginning. So, so what is your practice, Lord willing? It starts in the morning. There's a quiet place for you to do that. You don't do it like a showy person. You don't do it like a wordy person, but you just start straight away. What posture do you take in your prayers? Look at how this prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Practice prayer like this. Does this mean that we're supposed to take this particular prayer every day into a quiet place, memorize it, say it, rinse and repeat day after day after day? Is that what Jesus is saying with this? Well, it wouldn't hurt, but I think what he's saying is this is a model for our prayers, and you should know the way that this prayer starts is telling you something about how you ought to view yourself before God. Every part of this prayer can be broken down and preached, and I've done some of that before. But, but I want us to see the posture that this prayer takes right from the very beginning. Our Father. Like, I'm coming to you in a certain way, God. I'm not coming to you as, a, um, as like, you're the boss and I'm the employee. Hey, boss, I've done my job. I need a raise. That's, that's not my posture here. I'm not even coming to you like, like a, you're a, the general and I'm the soldier, be, because while you are and you can demand things, I, there's more of an intimacy there than that. I'm not, I'm not coming to you like you're, you're a genie and, and I've got the lamp and now you have to do this if I say things the right. I'm not coming to you that way. I'm coming to you as a, as a humble child. That's the posture. I'm not talking about my body so much, but that is the posture of my heart. Now, I mentioned this at um, Pastor Pat's funeral on Wednesday about the last visit that I had with him uh, the day before he passed away. And he was very ready to see Jesus, and he, and he said he was tired of reading about it. He wanted to see the real thing, which I was just like, oh, I was like, it was amazing. And uh, as he was trying to get rid of me, because sometimes my visits go too long, uh, it's really hard. I never know how to end those visits. He does. And so he's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to let you go. Why don't you pray for me, and then you can go about your busy day. I was like, that's very sweet. Uh, thank you. And so I was like, okay. So I went to pray for him, and uh, as I mentioned on, uh, on Wednesday at the funeral, he, he was in his bed, and I said, yeah, I'll pray for you. And he leaned his head back like this, and he opened his hands like this. You've probably seen him do this if you've ever seen a preacher. A lot of times he'd close the service that way, and he went like this. And it was as if he was going, my father, whatever you have, I'm ready. Like, like his approach wasn't like, <clears throat> it, was, it was very open to whatever God was about to do next. And, and I don't think that it's important that we like do this every time we pray or, or whatever. I, that, that's not what I'm saying. I think the attitude or the heart that 
that wants to look up to our heavenly Father, whose name is holy, whose kingdom is come, whose will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and to receive from him what he has. Our posture in prayer is not to say, dear God, I'm trying my best down here. I'm building something important. Can you just help me do it? No, it's not about my name. It's not about my kingdom. It's not about my will. We are to approach it as God's invitation into his mighty work. And I've looked, I've, I've looked at the prayers in the Bible a lot. And what I've noticed is that in the, in the Bible prayers, most of the time they're spent telling God how awesome he is and trying to align with the brilliance of God, not demanding stuff from God or even asking stuff. It's spent way more in the direction of God, you are good, I want to align with that. Augustine, the North African church father, said this, we need to use words when we pray so that we may remind ourselves to consider carefully what we're asking, not so that we may think we can instruct the Lord or prevail on him. When we say, hallowed be your name, we are reminding ourselves to desire that his name, which is, in fact, always holy, should also be considered holy among men. This is a help for men, not for God. As for the saying, your kingdom come, it will surely come whether we will it or not. But we're stirring up our desires for the kingdom so that it can come to us and we can deserve to reign there. God is telling us, Jesus here is teaching us how to pray. And he's saying, take the posture that's going, all right, you are the Father. It is your will. It is your kingdom. It is your name. I want to receive from you what I have. We are called to be humble and yet bold all at the same time. We are called to be like, this is maybe a weird, uh, uh, weird person to use as an illustration, but we're called to be like Charlie Bucket. Does that name sound familiar? So, okay. So over the holidays, our family went and saw the movie Wonka. Uh, you, know, you know what's awesome? Taking teenage boys to a movie and then realizing 30 seconds in, oh, it's a musical. <laughs> that, that's a good time right there. I'm like, I'm watching. Anyway, it's actually really good. I, I never endorse movies because someone's going to find something to be offended about, so I'm not going to endorse it, but it was great. And um, so, so we saw it, and then we're like, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's watch Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory like a couple days later so we can like see where the story went. I, I, the last, I don't know when you saw that movie last, weirdest movie ever, Okay. <laughs> There's like a, like a snake. It's, it's so weird. There's a moment. Anyway, so whatever. But in that movie, I was reminded of the, of the juxtaposition between Charlie, Charlie Bucket. I didn't even remember that was his last name. Charlie, who's like this humble kid. He doesn't have much. He cares about what his family's needs are and that sort of thing. And he's just very open. And, and then you get all these bratty kids. And they're all like different versions of obnoxious or rude or whatever. And maybe the worst of the lot is, is one named Veruca Salt. And Veruca sings this song, and the lyrics say, I want a ball, I want a party, pink macaroons, a million balloons, performing baboons, and give it to me right now. And I want the world, I want the whole world, I want to lock it all up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. Give it to me now. And there's this, there's this difference. You have Charlie, who's just... And then there's Veruca. She just wants everything. How do you pray? What's your posture? Is your posture, God, give it to me now. If you don't make me or my children healthy, I don't know that I'm going to follow you anymore. Really? God, I need this. You know I need it. You know I've tried hard. 
Really? Is that the posture? Or is the posture, my Father, our Father, your name is holy. It is about your will and your kingdom. I'm not going to try to like show off my virtue. I'm not going to try to convince you by using a million words. I'm just going to quietly take this humble posture before you to pray like Jesus taught me to. And if we do, then our Father sees in secret, and he, instead of crushing or destroying or abandoning us, he rewards us. Which brings us to part three, the promise of prayer. The promise of prayer. Now, it would be nice to think that the reward or the promise of prayer is that whatever we ask for, it will be ours. Again, back to that sort of genie in the lamp idea. But that is not what the promise is here. The, the striking of gold, if you will. Our kingdom will not necessarily be built. Our will will not necessarily be done. That is not the promise or the reward of prayer. So, so then, what is it? What, what is the promise? When he says he's going to reward, how is God going to reward you for praying? Well, I think we can see a little bit about what the promise is by looking at the specific petition. So let's look at those for just a moment. Give us this day our daily bread. By the way, is that how you pray? Do you, do you ask for daily bread? Most of us are like, no, I got my own bread. Right? I ask for a bonus. I ask for filet. I ask for something better. I'll, God, I'll take care of my basic needs. I pretty much got it covered. I'm a very capable person. What I'm asking you for is the stuff that I'm not able to do. Now, that's how we pray. But that's not what Jesus taught. He said, God, give us our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Is that how we pray? God, I'm going to confess, and I want you to forgive me. I want you to forgive me in, in comparison to how forgiving of a person I am. Only forgive me as far as I'm willing to forgive others. Is that how we pray? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do we recognize how much guidance and protection from God we need? Jesus gave them these three sort of strange-to-our-ears petitions, but I think... Buried in them is a promise, a promise of reward. No one has ever known God the Father like Jesus. No one has ever talked to God the Father like Jesus. And Jesus didn't just talk the game, he then lived it, didn't he? He actually had to, later after this, he actually is in a situation where he's going, God, I, can you take this cup from me? I don't, want to, I don't want to walk this path, but it's about your name, it's your will and your kingdom and your will be done, Father. He demonstrated obedience, submission, even to the very cross. And Jesus, who taught this prayer and lived out this prayer and, and prayed like nobody else ever could, he said, make these things your petition. What's, what's the point of these three things? Why did he say pray these Three things. Here's, here's what I think the promise is. When Jesus told us to pray like this, he was saying, God cares about your daily life. Talk to him about it. So I don't know if you see this or not, but in the first half of the prayer, he goes, we are being invited, we little earthlings, into God's very presence. Our Father, holy name, his will is given. The second half of this prayer, these petitions are saying, and heaven is also coming to us. 
The very presence of God is coming to us. When we pray this way, we touch heaven and heaven touches us. See, the promise of prayer, the reward is more God. And you're like, really? Wait, wait. If you could get more money or more God, which would be better for you? Could I have both? No, no, play my game. (laughs) If you could have more of the presence of God in your life or more money in your bank account, which would make the bigger difference? If you could have more of the presence of God in your life or more physical health, which would be better for you? If you could have more of the presence of God in your life or more fame and notoriety, which would be better for you? Okay, preacher, I know I'm supposed to say more God. Yep. That's the promise. That's the reward. That when you go ask, when a kid asks his father, Dad, will you come play baseball, play catch with me or whatever? It's only a little bit about the playing catch. It's a lot about just being together. (laughs) That we are invited to go into the presence of God and experience more of him, to learn more of him, to be shaped more into Christ-likeness. Jesus is Emmanuel, God who came to be with us, yes, to set an example, to die on the cross and raise again to life. And he calls us into that life, the life of more time, more awareness, more comfort, more peace, more love, more joy, more of the Spirit of God in our lives. That is the reward. If, not when, but if, we will pray like this. Let's pray together. Father, you are our Father, not just mine, ours. And God, you have so beautifully invited us into your presence in a way we certainly do not deserve and we cannot fully comprehend. And this is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, God, we I would ask that you would reignite, reignite the passion, the understanding, the desire for prayer, and the practice of prayer amongst us. That 2024 would be the most prayerful year of our lives and of this church. And we know, God, that you promise to meet us in those prayers, to speak to us, to direct us, to lead us, not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And so we ask for more of you, and we thank you for these promises in Jesus' name. Amen.